My name is Jerry. I'm an alcoholic. Still. <laughs> I uh, was told when I came here by our fearless leaders, namely Scott, Steve, and that crowd that started this thing, that uh, I was to select a topic that I wanted to. There you go. You're a good thinker. You must be a lawyer. Oh, he's a practicing lawyer. That's a, uh, I, <laughs> actually that took a half hour. <laughs> well, you have to plan. Then you have to recover after you've worked. It, 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 there's a science to this that most of you don't realize. Yes, yes. Well, I, I've enjoyed being here very much, and thank you for having me. Uh, it's been a, a, it's really a nice place and a, uh, a great bunch of guys. And uh, I'm going to treat you to uh, your first or second longest hour of the weekend. Uh, <laughs> I didn't tell you some things last night that I really kind of needed to tell you. Uh, I took it rather personally that my wife went to Al-Anon. It didn't didn't occur to me that she needed any help at all. I couldn't see why she had a problem. Uh, And in the course of discussing that with her, trying to find out where the hell she was going, she didn't tell me. She didn't tell me, and I, I neglected to tell you this last night. She uh, she was not exactly forthcoming when I asked her about where she had been going. Uh, my daughter told me she had been going to a family meeting. And I, as a lawyer, we decided we were going to get a divorce in six months if things didn't get better. And I, as a lawyer, felt like if there was a family meeting going on somewhere that she was present at, Probably I needed a representative present at that meeting. And uh, so when she came in, I began to find out, you know, what and where this meeting was. And I asked her where she'd been, and she said, out, uh, which set the tone for the whole proceeding, you know, uh, out. Out where? To a shopping center. Which one? Preston Center. What'd you do there? Met some friends. Who were they? You wouldn't know them. (laughs) What did you discuss? What did you do? Well, we just talked about our experience, strength, and hope. And then finally, finally, I got the word out of her. And the word was Al-Anon. Al-Anon. I had never heard the word Al-Anon. But by this time, we were in rather heated discussion, and I did not want to appear ignorant. So I made my best guess. And I decided it must be an aluminum kitchen utensil of some type. It it wasn't. It wasn't. It isn't. It isn't. It's a wonderful organization full of loving people or, you know, and when I found out she was going to this place and that everybody was welcome, 
uh, it, I didn't rejoice in that at all. I, I immediately switched to thinking about what's this going to do to me? What's this going to do to me? Will they find out about me downtown? And what will they do to me when they find out about me? And that's a form of what I want to talk about this morning, self-centeredness. Self-centeredness was a difficult concept for me to get my head around. Uh, the first time I read about it in the book, where it talks about self-centeredness being the center of our problems, I skipped that page. Uh, why should I read about your problems? I'm not self-centered. And, well, I gave money to the church. I was supporting a bunch of ragnot kids and my wife. And hell, I I was not self-centered. I didn't need didn't need that trick thing. But the longer I stayed, the more they talked about it. They talked about it. Some people talked about it in Alcoholics Anonymous as though it's the cause of alcoholism. It is not the cause of alcoholism. Alcoholism is a physical reaction to the drug alcohol and an obsession of the mind. An obsession of the mind that Teo says when I, when you take a drink of alcohol, I, I'll, I think I'll have another one of those, no matter what the circumstances are. And so what, is, what does self-centeredness have to do with all this? We devote the third step, the fourth step, the fifth step, and the sixth and seventh step in part to this concept and why, why we have it, what it is, why we need, need to get rid of it. And the fact is, while it's not the cause of alcoholism, it's the cause of most slips that come about in alcoholism. And it's the cause of the most failures that the alcoholic has in, in achieving recovery in the program of alcoholism. It's a difficult thing to get your head around. Uh, you don't, I, did, I had trouble understanding it. Everybody thinks of themselves, don't they? I have a friend of Dallas who says, I, I'm, I'm not much, but that I'm about all I think about. Uh, and that's sort of the way I was. I was, I was reacting to me. It's where you take life personally. Whatever happens, if it's important at all, it's happening to me. You and I can walk down the street and at the end of a few blocks, ask, I, somebody could ask us a question, what was the most important thing you saw as you walked down the street? And we will have different answers. Largely, it will be what affected me in that walk, what, uh, what attracted me, what threatened me, what it was that, that I focused on. That's the self-centeredness that we talk about. I had met an old man one time years ago. He was named Dr. Bob Gibson. And Dr. Bob Gibson was not an alcoholic. He was a doctor of osteopathy, and he'd given up his practice to go around the country talking about a spiritual life. And uh, he thought that, as Alcoholics Anonymous does, that self-centeredness was the biggest problem in achieving a spiritual life. If you'll read carefully the fourth step, the lead into the fourth step, it talks about what's blocking us. 
We need to find the cause and condition of our failures and to find that which is blocking us. Blocking us from what? The power that we need. The power, the, the higher power. Self-centeredness keeps us away from that power. I believe this God we have is a perfect gentleman. He'll stay away if you want him to. He's present always, but he will not force himself on you. And I think you have to find a way to locate this self-centeredness or you'll never get it. Dr. Bob Gibson said it all started in the womb. He said, when we're in the womb, everything's taken care of. It's warm. We're floating around in a nice warm bath. We don't have to breathe. We don't have to eat. We don't have to do anything. Everything is just fine. We are undisturbed. And we are happy. And then it happens. We get born. And they slap us on the butt. They put drops in our eyes. They begin to, we begin to mess our pants. We are hungry. We're cold. We're hot. We have a lot of problems. We have, we are, we are disturbed. We are not undisturbed anymore. And we have, we know, based on our experience in the womb, we have the absolute right to be undisturbed. No question about it. We just, by God, it's, it's our right to have that. And we are given the tool very early to try to get that right. And what is that? When we're not getting it, we complain. We begin to cry. We cry quietly for a little while maybe. But then if they don't respond to us, we really let it go. We get ticked off, anger comes in, and we begin to demand that somebody fix us by God. Now, we don't have to go very long before the people around us begin to get a little tired of our demands. You may, some of you may know that. Uh, <laughs> if you've ever had a baby with colic, you know very well how tired you can get uh, of the demands. Uh, they can't talk to you, but they just raise a lot of hell, and, you, and you're trying to figure all the time what it is. And so what you ultimately do, you begin to work on a process of reward and punishment. You reward them for not crying, and you give them a little trouble, not really punishment, but you, you uh, make it a little unpleasant for them when they, when they do cry sometimes. And the kid knows that. He picks that up on them pretty, pretty, pretty quick. So he begins to learn that, well, if, if his crying doesn't work, if demands don't work, maybe, just maybe, if I try to do what they want me to do, like smile, giggle and girl, doing that sort of thing, maybe they'll pick me up and give me what I want. But now we've got internal conflict going. Now I'm doing something I don't want to do to get something I want. It's like, it's like I used to illustrate this with a, a sign I had. It was an arrow, two arrows. An arrow with a, a point on each end. And over the top of those arrows, it said one way. Which, which way are you going to go? Uh, and that's internal conflict. And we have a lot of that. And it goes on for all of our lives. As life comes along, we find what the baby finds. 
there is resistance to what I want. We do all we can to avoid that resistance, but we always have it. And resistance is a way the power, I think, tries to teach us about life. The people you know who have the least resistance in their life are the least mature and the least whole people that you run across. They don't ever get it. They just get what they want. They're spoiled, we say. Well, it goes on. This resistance is always present. You never can get away from it. And you try to please, and that works for a while. And you get tired of that, and you become defiant. Just by God to hell with them. I'll just get what I want. I'll just take it. That's what I'll do. I'll just take it. And, of course, that creates more resistance. And uh, then we we switch to a, we may switch to a, some people do, switch to a, a mode of trying to please by doing what the big boys are doing to get successful, to, to what authorities want us to do. Follow all the damn rules. Al-Anon's do a lot of this, following all the damn rules, I think. My wife follows all the damn rules. Right? <laughs> Even when nobody's watching, she follows the damn rules. Anyway, that doesn't work either because there's still resistance. There's still, you're running into other people. Our book tells us in the very first part of, of uh, step three, that a life based on self-centeredness could hardly be successful. We all have these wants, these demands, these not needs but wants that, that conflict with one another, and we, have, we create our own resistance within that. Uh, you find other ways to try to be undisturbed, uh, achievement. I don't know whether anybody ever was driven by achievement or not, but I, I was driven by achievement. I, uh, I have, this Dr. Bob told me, or told us that we have four basic urges. First urge is to find pleasure and avoid pain. And the second is to get attention and avoid being ignored. The third is to find acceptance and avoid rejection. And the final one is to be important and not be insignificant. Now, I chase those a lot. The fact is that's the, that's the human condition. That's the way that we start off. That's the, word, that's the beginning point of our growth. And what I think happens, what happened to me was that I could never quite get it. I needed money, but I never had enough. I needed things. I remember when I was first went to Dallas and got a job in a law firm, I had to ride the bus to work. Hated to ride the bus to work. It was hot. I had to stand up because there was always some woman who wanted to sit down. I, uh, 
the fumes from the gas, you know, from the engine were always coming up in the t- inside the thing. I just didn't like to ride the bus. Then I graduated to a carpool, and I was never ready to go when they were ready to go or when they weren't ready to come home. When I was ready to come home, it just didn't work. And I knew, I knew I would be happy. I would be undisturbed if I ever got to the point where I had my own car. We had one car, but my wife seemed to have to use it all the time because of the kids, and I I needed a car. I wanted a car. Finally, I got a car. I hadn't had that car two weeks until I came upon a great truth. Wrong kind of car. <laughs> I needed a bigger car, a better car, And I chased more, better, and different as far as you can chase more, better, and different. I thought when I made partner in my law firm, I would be happy. That would be it. I would be accepted. They wouldn't reject me. The fear of I was going to be important. I made partner. They made me a junior partner. I didn't want to be a junior partner. I wanted to be a whole partner, a senior partner. And, and they made that happened when a bunch of guys left the firm and they made me that, I thought, so I'd share the, the cost of the rent. That's what they're trying to do is spread the cost out of money. It wasn't because I, I achieved anything, but that's, that was the way I was reacting to life. And I chased more, better, and different, and I thought that was the way it was. I thought that was going to bring me happiness and fulfillment as I went along. Uh, the final stage of all of this, when you've gone through, you never give up any one of these things. You never give up complaining and demanding, or I didn't. Uh, you, you never give up trying to please. You never give up trying to be important. You never give up any of these things. You just use them at different times in different places. But they all produce an unsatisfactory result for the most part. You wind up recognizing that you've done every damn thing you can and you're still not you're still undis- you're still disturbed you have not achieved being undisturbed or un- unhappy and what do you do then you blame it's their fault by god or it's my fault because i didn't quite do it so i'm guilty i feel bad about that uh i'm restless irritable and discontented And I don't know what you did when you were restless, irritable, and discontented. But somewhere back there, I found a a solution to restless, irritable, and discontent. Short term, didn't last long, but if you apply it often enough, sometimes you're really serene. You don't know where you are or what happened. You just... It's wonderful. It's wonderful. It's worth, it's worth, oblivion is a wonderful thing, you know, when you, when you really get in the, in the pits there. You, uh, you fear. Another thing that comes out of this thing is fear. You're not going to get what you want. It's, they're going to take it away. The book says, the 12 and 12 tells us that we, fear is, uh, the feeling we get when we think somebody's going to take something important away from us or keep us from getting what we want. And this is, this cropped up in me. I had a lot of fear. That's what happened to me when my wife was going to Al-Anon. 
That was fear. That was self-centeredness expressing itself in the sense that it self-reliance had ended. I couldn't stop her from going to that damn thing. I tried everything I could to keep her from going to Al-Anon, and she kept going. And she liked it, and I didn't want her to like it. And I had this fear. I I was scared to death they were going to find out downtown Dallas that I was a, a drunk. Uh, and I knew they'd fire me because we already had we had two alcoholics, senior partners. They weren't junior partners. They were senior partners, and they were drunks. And I heard them talk about what they were going to do. They were going to get rid of them just as soon as they could. And here I was just barely on the partnership track, and I was about to, you know, if they found out I was a drunk, or even if my wife thought I was a drunk, they'd get rid of me. They didn't need any more trouble. They had a full complement of drunks. They didn't want any more. <laughs> so I, uh, I didn't want them to know, and when I got to AA, I didn't want them to know I was an AA either. I figured it would be just as bad for them to find that I was an AA as it was to find out that my wife thought I was a drunk. So I, I, well, I'd go to meetings and I'd scan the room to see if there was anybody in there that might know one of my partners and call downtown and said, guess what? We saw, we saw one of your young partners, uh, in an AAA meeting, one of them alcoholic anonymous meetings. Uh, what was he doing there? And I could just, every day I'd go to work and I'd think, well, it's the day they're going to call me in and fire my ass. Uh, and then I'd go home that night. I think I got to get that woman out of Al- Al-Anon because uh, they're, they're going to find out. And then they begin to ask me to go to different groups and make little talks. And I'd go and I'd scan the room and I'd try to see if there was anybody there, you know. And I kept worried about that. And one day after I'd been sober about 11 months, I was on the way to work and my paranoia took over. I'd wondered why they didn't confront me with going to AA. And it occurred to me that day, they know. <laughs> they know. They're waiting till the annual partners meet, meeting and they're going to fire me next week at that partners meeting in full view of all the partners. That's what they're going to do. Like hell they are. <laughs> I'm reasonably aggressive. Uh, I decided I'll force the issue. I'll go on the attack. And I picked out five of them. Department heads, managing partner. And I decided I'll tell those summages and if they're going to fire me, they'll have to fire me before that partner's meeting. So I, I picked out the meanest one first. He was the managing partner. He didn't, he was not a warm and cuddly man. Uh, <laughs> I walked into his office and I knocked on the door and, come in! And I looked in and I said, uh, <clears throat> could I could, uh, speak to you for a moment, sir? And he said, what do you want? <clears throat> I said, well, I, I have something. What, is, what do you want to tell me? Well, <clears throat> it is, sir, that uh, I'm an alcoholic. And I've been sober and alcoholic anonymous for 11 months. And I'm not telling you this because it's good or bad. I'm just telling you this because you need to know it. I... Uh, 
If you ever see me drinking again, some of our clients are in trouble. And if you ever know anybody that needs a little help along the lines that I'm involved with, I might be able to help them. He was one of those guys that just reacted instantly, you know, and he did. He said, I am delighted. My God, I wondered what was wrong with you. He sat there, and for the next half hour, he talked, and I listened. He said, we knew something was wrong with you. I asked you if you'd been drinking too much, and you told me no. And I said, well, I didn't think I was. And he said, never mind. He said, when you say you're an alcoholic, that's something that's got some, that's a, that's a point that, that someone with your problem can seldom say. When you say you're an AA, that's the best place you could possibly be. That's a wonderful organization. I don't know nearly much as much about that as I'd like to know. But they help people, and they do a good job. And you've got a great future. We need you in this law firm. You're going to be a good trial lawyer. You've noticed I've started sending you business again, haven't you? I heard you was on the water wagon, but I'm not impressed with the water wagon. People get off and push the water wagon all the time. Well, you say you're an AA, by God, that's, that's, that speaks the well of you. And in 30 minutes, he completely erased that self-centered fear that I had. I walked out of that office, and I could have whipped King Kong left-handed. <laughs> I feared no man. I, I went to those other four guys, and I told them exactly, by God, how it was. Me and the boss had talked it over. <laughs> <laughs> And we were delighted that I was in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all of them but one gave me the same support. The one didn't want to talk to me about it. He wanted to talk to me about what kind of case I was working on. He wanted to talk to me about his ranch or his farm or or he's held anything in the world other than that. He was one of the two that was an alcoholic. And I picked him. He was an important and powerful man in my law firm. But I picked him because I knew he might need the deal. And he, uh, he finally said, I know. I said, I need to tell you this. I need to say what I've got to say here now. And he said, I know, I know, I'm an alcoholic. But I'm not drinking now, and I don't think I'll have to drink anymore. I think i got a handle on it. Well, he had a handle on it, all right. A little while later, he took off on a deal somewhere in Houston and got drunk and took off all his clothes and locked himself in, the, in his hotel room with all the papers to close the transaction. And... The client called the firm, and the firm sent a battery of lawyers to Houston to clean up the deal. And they got him out and got him dressed and called me and said, uh, Jerry, uh, we're sending him home on a 3.30 flight at Love Field. And when he gets there, he belongs to you. (laughs) 
do with him as you choose. <laughs> and I sent him to Hazelden, and uh, he got sober, and he had never had another drink. And that wasn't because I deserve any credit for that. I didn't deserve any credit for for going and telling them that I was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But I got myself in a position of dealing with reality, who I really was. And that's a good place to be. What are they going to do to me? What are you going to do to me? I'm an alcoholic. Shoot your best shot. And they didn't. They, they welcomed me. They, they respected me. They didn't understand me. They never did understand what I did in Alcoholics Anonymous. I was going to make a talk one weekend, and I had my suitcase at work, and I was going to the airport. And they said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to, I don't know, Seattle or somewhere. And they said, what are you going to do up there? And I said, I'm going to go up there and talk to a bunch of alcoholics. Oh, well, what are you going to tell them? I said, I'm going to, I'm going to tell them. I'm going to tell them about how it was with me, how I got drunk and how I got sober. That's what I'm going to tell them about. They said, God, can't they find somebody closer to home than this? <laughs> I said, yeah, probably. You know, they may invite me to Tennessee one of these days. You can't tell. <laughs> But that self-centered fear was shot through my life. And we take this fourth-step inventory. That's what we're looking for is self-centeredness. Because until we get the focus off of us and somewhere else, we have no chance to receive or to embrace the power that exists within us and all around us. God's everything. He's nothing. And He's everywhere present. But we got to be tuned in to the right channel, or we get nothing but snow, just like you do on TV. And that self-centeredness lives us and leaves us in that world of snow. The way I discovered self-centeredness was uh, when I went to see my managing partner. I'm not sure I really knew I was dealing with self-centeredness. I still had a lot of resistance to that. I Geez, I just, I just had a, a aversion to the idea that I was self-centered. And, uh, I didn't talk to my wife about it. I didn't talk to anybody, my sponsor much. I just, just dwelled on it a lot, thought about it a lot. And, uh, then one day we were in a meeting and, uh, they began, uh, they were, they had talked about self-centeredness and unmanageability. I wasn't unmanageable either when I got here. I'd done very well, thank you. I drank a little too much, but I was getting a handle on this, and just as soon as I got this taken care of, I'd be right back on the track and everything would be fine. I just wasn't unmanageable, and, and you know, I wasn't self-centered, so I kind of tuned out of the uh, conversation there for a while. I wasn't going to comment. I just didn't know need, no need to try to help these people. They take care of themselves. Uh, I, uh, I Suddenly I, I remembered that one of the things that had happened to me that – when I was drinking a lot, was it, uh, when I was taking the test, you know, I told you all about taking that two drink. I, I did that in my green chair, and generally I was watching television. You couldn't read when you were as drunk as I was, and, and so you had to watch television or do something. And, uh, I, uh, I was in a, I was in a pet store one day, and I, 
I saw a, an aquarium, and I was really attracted to that aquarium. It was beautiful. It was pretty, and uh, I thought, you know, I want an, uh, my own aquarium, my aquarium. And uh, <laughs> so I bought it. I bought one. I bought the kind, the size I wanted, and I put it between my chair and the wall. It was my aquarium. And uh, <laughs> I put the kind of gravel in the bottom of it that I wanted, the color I wanted. I, I put the kind of plants I wanted in there. I wanted leafy plants that kind of reached up to the surface, you know, graceful and beautiful and kind of waved in the... <laughs> and it, you know, it had a light. I could make it daylight or I could make it dark. Uh, I had... I put the kind of fish I wanted in there. I liked pretty, slow-swimming fish. <laughs> and I fed my fish in my aquarium. I... Sometimes it was a land of plenty, and sometimes there was a famine upon the land. <laughs> and while I was sitting in that meeting that night, I remembered, and that ideal, I could watch that thing and just get Walter Mitty thoughts, just dream wild thoughts, you know. And But I remembered in that meeting that night that, my God, there was always one thing about that aquarium that bothered me pretty bad. And that is that we had different kinds of fish that had different kinds of functions. And some of those fish were not exactly peaceful. Uh, some of them would nip the tail of the real pretty fish, and the real pretty fish would begin to swim back and forth. And the first thing you know, they'd get the whole damn bunch just going, fish going everywhere. And it just drove me crazy. Just drove me crazy. And I'd reach out and slap the side of that. <laughs> Give them a clap of thunder to let them know there's a power out there greater than they were that was unhappy. I gave them three claps of thunder. And then you'd think they'd learn. Uh, but some don't. They seem to have been born that way. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing to talk about this. I was a 41-year-old big-time lawyer sitting there training fish. Uh, <laughs> now, I realized that those really rebellious fish needed to have a hands-on experience with the power. So I bought a dip net. And I would catch the bad fish and I'd take him out of the water and hold him on my lap. Have a drink. Let him get still. And then you flip him back in there. Now, if you ever do, if you ever do this, I want to help you a little. If you keep them out too long, they float. <laughs> and I gave him three more steps with the three more treatments with the uh, dip net. Uh, and then I recognized that some just were not going to learn, and uh, I would. Uh, take them to the commode and flush them, uh, <laughs> buy another fish. Uh, 
And that night I realized, you know, you've been talking about being unmanageable. Not, not your life not being. You couldn't even run a damn fishbowl. Uh, and you, you know, not too many 41-year-old lawyers sit around and get offended by what fish are doing. Uh, that may be self-centeredness. You can't tell. They're not doing what you want them to do. And I began to find self-centeredness everywhere I looked. In traffic. Did you hear? I don't know about you, but I have a lane. It's my lane. <laughs> what happens in my lane is my business. You don't go too fast in my lane and honk at me from behind. You don't slow down in my lane. You don't cut in front. You do When you cut in my lane, you cut in front of me. And somebody has got to punish your ass. That's what I <laughs> So I can change my lane anytime I want to. I just pop over in the next lane and run you off the road. That's what my plan was. And uh, I, uh, it, it showed up everywhere. I, I realized that I was so wrapped up in my own thinking. I was just an Ottoman. I just reacted automatically to what happened. Uh, you push this button, you get this result. You push that button, you get that result. I was not a free, free thinker at all, not a free person at all. And I had to, uh, I had to go to work on that. Now the bad news is, the good news is I found it. And that's the first step that we have to find self-centeredness. The bad news is we can't get rid of it by ourselves. We've got to have the power's help to get rid of that. And that's what the other steps have to do with. The, you find it, you disclose it, you, you analyze it in the fourth step, and then you disclose it to another human being, to God, and then you become entirely ready to get rid of it. And you, you don't just make a decision to get rid of it, you, you've got to help. I think, uh, Earl Hudman says that what you do is you stop doing what you know is wrong, and start doing what you know is right, and your life will improve. And that's kind of what happens. You, it takes a, t- a it's not a, it's not an instantaneous thing. It's, it's just something that grows over your life. You, I don't know. I still do it. I still have to work on it. I still have to keep up with self-centeredness. I keep have to find it. And, but it is the thing that blocks you. The thing that blocks you from the power. And when you get to where you can become God-centered rather than self-centered, your life truly, truly changes. Part of self-centeredness has to do with values as well. What are your values? What's important to you? The Bible says something about, you know, where your treasures are, there will your heart be also. What is, what, what is it your, uh, what are your values? We all have values. We all act toward values. And we have a we have an internal monitor. I don't know about you, but I have a committee. Uh, committee meets and talks about various things that various subjects I've got to deal with. And it's but you, there's always one guy that I call him the observer. He's watching. He knows what the damn committee's doing. He's aware of what's happening. He's judging what the committee does or what whether it's good or bad or whatever. Sometimes I can shut him up. And do what I want to do. But he always comes back. He always remembers. That part of my mind, I guess you call it conscience. 
And you can, you can dull your conscience over time, but you can never really truly rid, rid yourself of that conscience. And that has to do, when I first came to AA, we talked a lot about self-esteem. I don't know whether that's discussed in your groups anymore or not, but I, most drunks don't have real high self-esteem. We've screwed it up pretty good. And we feel pretty bad. And at least I did. I thought I'd messed up my life pretty good. And uh, I had pretty low self-esteem, and I didn't know what to do with it. I had, I had pursued values that you gave to me, or I thought you gave to me. I was trying to do what I thought you expected me to do. I was affectionately known in my law, in my law firm as the alligator gar. I was a kind of a nasty guy in the courtroom. I thought my job was to destroy the opposition. And my favorite way to try a lawsuit was never put on a witness. So they didn't have anything to attack me with, but I could just, if I could tear theirs up enough, the jury would go with me that way. And when I started to work on the steps where I had to become entirely ready to get rid of some of this stuff, I had to rethink what my role was in that courtroom. First of all, you heard me talk last night about winning and losing lawsuits. Fact is, I had to give up winning and losing. I suddenly realized one day that, hell, I don't make the facts. I don't create the jury. I don't select the judge, the opposition, the defendant or the plaintiff, the other party. I'm just a player in this damn thing. I do my little part, but they got a big part to play, and I can't do anything about their part. I'm powerless over that. And and I got to quit trying to be what I think they want me to be. I need to be myself. And I wasn't sure at all that humility and honesty and all of those kind of things that they talked about would really work for a trial lawyer. I could just see myself standing up in front of the judge saying, well, Your Honor, I'm, I'm just a poor trial lawyer, and I would like for you to help my client. Uh, I didn't think they'd hire me to do that, uh, and they wouldn't have. But I found, I, I decided one day in the first trial I had after I got sober that I would go a new way. If anybody lied to me, I'd try to take the hide off of them. But if I would try to be a gentleman and just get the information I needed if, if they were decent and told, told me the truth. And I began to try lawsuits, and I became much more aware of what was going on in the courtroom, how the jury was reacting. And my, my whole approach to trying lawsuits changed because I got a new value to which I was working toward. I was trying to be ethical. I was trying to be honest. I was trying to present things to the, to the jury that I truly believed and not present things that I did not believe. And uh, it worked. It worked very well for me. Our desire chips in my part of the world say, "Have on them to thine own self be true." That's what that is. I said last night. They told me early on in the program that the greatest freedom I would ever, ever have was to 
be myself and live inside my own values. If you're living outside your values, you either have to change your values or you have to change your actions because you'll never be comf- uh, you'll never be comfortable any other way and you'll never you'll never have any self-esteem. But if you do that, if you if you do that and you begin to live that way, stay sober every day, over a period of time your feelings about yourself, your self-esteem will begin to, to come up. You'll get to feeling better and better about yourself. You'll know you're on the right road, the broad highway the book talks about. And there's some bad news with that. And the bad news is that the day you revert to your old self, to the day you take advantage of somebody, to the day you lie to somebody, the day you try to hit on a newcomer, or whatever it may be, that day your self-esteem will go right back to zero. Right back to zero. It does not perpetuate itself. And you have to start all over again. But I believe that's a part of the system. I believe that's a part of God's way to tell us what we're doing and what we're doing right. And what are these values we're looking for? They tell us in our book. We talk about humility. We talk about open-mindedness. We talk about honesty. We talk about love. We've got a lot of wonderful, wonderful attributes that we can live toward. And the early AAs used the four absolutes. They were love, honesty, purity, and unselfishness. Bill chose not to put those in the big book because they were described as the absolutes. And he didn't think that the drunks could handle absolute love, honesty, purity, and unselfishness. So he left them out. That ticked off a bunch of people in Akron. And uh, they they still put those four absolutes on the front of their podiums and around their room and, and talk about them. And there was no grand old man named Paul Keebler. He's passed on now, but he was a world-class AA. And they drove around the, the country in a big old Cadillac selling heavy equipment and going to AA meetings. And he was, he was always talking about the four absolutes. And one day I asked him, I said, Paul, what do you think about it? These four absolutes, is not a little too much for drunks to handle? And he said, oh, hell. He said, that don't mean you got to absolutely do it. <laughs> what that means is that's your goal. That's where you're going. He said, we used to say that when you get ready to make a decision in your life, you say, okay, is this a pretty thing to do? That's love. Love's always pretty. Do a pretty thing. Is it, uh, is it the right thing to do? Do I feel good about it? That's purity. It's what's it going to do to the other fellow? That's unselfishness. Then you ask yourself, now am I being honest with myself? Is this an honest thing to do? And if you pass all those tests, he said, hell, do it. Just do it. That's God's way of telling you to go ahead. And he gave me a tenth step to straighten it up if you, if you screw it up. And that's a lot of what I have lived with. It's a big help that way. Uh, we, we fear doing this. We fear this because we don't know whether we, what we'll be when we 
stop being self-centered, when we stop promoting ourselves, when we stop lying about ourselves, when we give up our secrets, all those, we worry about what, what are we going to be? What, what will people think of us? And I have a story about an old man in the mill that I, I think old Henry wrote this, but I've heard people tell me it was a different Arthur. I don't know who it was, but he, this old man lived, he lived in a little old town and they had had a mill and he was the janitor at the mill. And he, uh, he, uh, liked that job, but then they sold the mill to another company and the company came in there and they said, well, well, everybody's welcome to stay here that, that uh, has been working here, but you have to be able to read and write to work for this company. And the old man couldn't read and write. They fired him. He was out on the street. Didn't have much money, but he had a little, and he began to try to scuff and scratch and find a way to make a living, and he, uh, he started buying packages of cigarettes and going down to the train station, and when he called a guy fumbling around to see if he had cigarettes about to get on the train, he'd go up and sell him a pack of cigarettes for a little profit. Finally, he got him a little box where he put some tobacco of different kinds in there and some cigarettes, and uh, this was the day before smoking was bad. And uh, he, uh, he got that going. Finally, he had a little stand right there beside the station. Put a little stand down the track to the next station. He had two or three little stands, people working for him. And one of his friends one day said, what do you, what do you do with your money that you're making off? You've been making some money. What do you do with it? And he said, oh, I got it in a box under the bed. He said, oh, you, you can't, you can't put your money in a box under the bed. Somebody will steal it. He said, well, what do you do with it? He said, well, you take it to the bank. The bank will take care of it for you. And they'll give it to you when you want it. Really? He said, yeah. He said, I'll take you down there. He took him down there and introduced him to the bank president. The bank president was happy to see a man with a box of money. And uh, he, he counted it, and he said, it's a lot of money you got here. He said, you've done very well. He said, uh, here's a signature card. Now, if you'll just sign the signature card, we'll let, you can write checks and draw this money out anytime you want to. And the old man said, well, he said, uh, I, I, I can't read or write. And the banker said, you mean tell me you made all this money and you can't read or write? My God, there's no telling what you'd do if you, if you could read or write. He said, oh, if I could read or write, I'd be a janitor over there at the mill. <laughs> you don't know where you're going. You only know where you've been. And you have to learn your lessons from that, and you have to find self-centeredness. It's very important that you do that. It's very important that you remove all obstacles between you and the power, and that you then lend yourself to the power and the things that the power considers valuable and useful in society. And now, all of you who have been sleeping uh, are going to get a chance to talk. There's a microphone right here. It's not for me to use. So you guys... If you can, maybe you can hear in here, so see whether you, well, but, uh, Lee won't be able to get it on the tape, so if you will, if you got questions or comments or anything, or if you don't, we'll just, we'll go drink coffee somewhere, whatever. <laughs> Anybody got a comment? Question? See a man moving. See two men moving. That's good. I just wanted to know 
is that that last story you told, is it true? I don't know. Oh. Jerry, Peter, alcoholic. I, uh, Don, Don uh, Major, who's another attorney, was here last year, and uh, he was talking a little bit about his lane and uh, mentioned uh, about his challenge with uh, being the, the speed limit. Um, how do you deal with speeding? Well, that's no, nobody's business. Uh, <laughs> that's an honest answer. Uh, I, I do very well when no one's watching. Uh, yes, sir. I, I, I'm a work in progress, I'll tell you that. They call me Parnelli Jones around the... Yes, sir. Yeah, Bill Wilson makes the makes a distinction between selfish and self-centered. I just and I was confused about that. My sponsor had an answer, but I'm curious what your response would be. Thanks. I don't know that I've ever thought about that. Uh, selfish and self-centered. Well, selfish is a grasping thing. Selfish is is trying to keep something. To, that's the way it seems to me. Uh, and self-centeredness is just a, a focus on yourself. That's that's kind of what your sponsor say. Uh, he said self-centered was when I had an agenda. Agenda, okay. And selfish is what? More like you said, like you were asking. Yeah. Yeah. Good, thank you. Here comes a good man. Don't be so sure of that. Uh, <laughs> I, you may have said this, and I may have been uh, dozing or something, but what are some of the ways that you get out of being self-centered personally? You work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's all I know. You, uh, they are specifically designed for that purpose, and they tell you what to do to get there, and they, they tell you how to find it. They tell you what to do about it. And then they tell you how to to uh, restore the damage you've caused by it. And then they tell you where you should spend the rest of your life and what you should be doing then. That's what I think. Jerry, we've got a lot of uh, uh, new people to Alcoholics Anonymous here. And one of the things that, that I hear often and that uh, these guys might hear is that AA is a selfish program. I'd like to hear you address that, if you would. Well, you've got to get sober for yourself. It seems it doesn't work to have the motivation to get sober to be your wife or your family or your whatever. You need to work the program to solve your problem. But it's the absolute opposite as far as the interest and the objective of Alcoholics Anonymous. We, we're totally focused out on finding help, ways to help the newcomer and help our, help our fellow alcoholics. So we're not, we're not, uh, self-centered in the sense that we don't do it. Now I'll say this. You hear people and you watch it, you watch in your groups who goes to meetings? There's a period of time where people go to meetings, say the first three, 
four years, and then you see people cease to go. And you ask them, why aren't you going to meetings? And they say, well, I'm not going to drink. I don't need to go. Those are the people who drift away from Alcoholics Anonymous. Those people that stay in Alcoholics Anonymous, like most of the people here, most of the people with any length of sobriety, 10 years, whatever it was that you stood up for last night, those people are interested in the, in the healing process. They're looking, they're not going to meetings necessarily because they think they're going to drink. They're going to meetings because they like it. And as the old man says, you don't know, you don't have to like me coming, but you can expect me because I'm by God going to be there. I like what's going on here. It's like the world's largest soap opera. Uh, we got something going on every meeting. And you missed it if you didn't go. What'd you miss? I don't know, but you weren't there. That's what my friend Jim Wilson used, uh, Jim Williams used to say. So we, we do look beyond ourselves and we're cured by that, that purpose. Is that satisfactory? Okay. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, Jerry, you, you, you mentioned that line in the, in the big book, the, uh, the first requirements that we be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success. And my sponsor pointed that out and gave me the assignment of looking at the men in my life who I felt like were a success and asking myself, were they running their lives on self-will? And that assignment worked good for me because I discovered that the people who I really did admire, who I felt were happy in their lives, were... Uh, had some faith in their lives. And I've since given that assignment to men, and I had a guy last year come back to me and say that he, a man he admired who he felt was content and happy was a complete atheist and running his life on self-will. And I didn't know what to say to the guy. <laughs> so I was wondering what, uh, what you might have said. Well, what's God? What's God? You say you're an atheist and you don't believe in God. I just read a book. I didn't read all of it. I read what I thought was the salient points in it. God is a delusion. It's written, written by a scientist who's one of the leading atheists in the uh, United States. I read that. My wife brought it in and she was in a book club and they were reading it and uh, she brought it in and said, you, wanna, you ought to read this. And I said, I don't want to read that book. But I decided I owed it to myself and to read the book enough of it to know what the hell the guy was talking about. And it's just a it's just a little different way of looking at things. He he believes in natural selection. Well, who in the hell made natural selection? Uh, he believes in uh, he believes that everything you know grew from the Big Bang. Well, who made the Big Bang? Who's behind that? I read a line not too long ago about the scientist and the and the uh, and the uh, religious religious people met on the peak of the Mount of Ignorance. We reach a point where we just don't know. Now, your friend may say nobody's been able to prove God to me, but if your friend is observant at all, he can look around and see. A natural order of things. He can see what's successful in life. 
And you can call that evidence of God or you can say it's just whatever you want to call it. But the fact is, it's not a life based on self-centeredness. Because self-centeredness may work to make money. It may work to achieve power. But it does not work to achieve a full, rounded, happy, joyous, and free life, in my opinion. That's what I would tell him. Hello, Jerry. Hi. My name's Bill. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Bill. My question is, uh, my wife has begun Al-Anon herself, and I'm early in my sobriety at Discovery Place. And uh, I just want to know any suggestions that you may have to make my sobriety and AA fit well with her going to Al-Anon. And, you know, your wife's in it and whatnot. And I don't want to make no problems, and I don't want us to conflict. So anyway... <laughs> But I can make this work good together. I'd appreciate you. Well, go home and tell your wife that uh, you ran across an old boy from Texas who uh, would say without any without any doubt that uh, Al-Anon saved his life. She uh, she had the guts to go in the face of pretty pretty stringent resistance on my part. She stayed in that program, and she and I communicate. On the same level. And the level is the program of Al-Anon and AA. The steps are the same. The problems are a little different. But they deal with self-centeredness just like we do. And it's so helpful, so helpful to a marriage for everybody to be on the same page. Most often, when one, one spouse doesn't go and the other one does, they grow apart spiritually. Because if you really endorse, if you really get in this program, if you go for it, your life is going to change. And when your life changes, her reaction to you has got to change. But if she's going the same way you're going, she can embrace and, you know, be happy with that change. So I, you know, both of you, get in it and stay in it. Tell all your friends. Sir. My name is Wynn Towns. Hello, Mr. Towns. I'm, I'm having a problem with honesty. Okay. Um, <laughs> when, when it affects me financially. You're doing it good, doing real good right now, I'll tell you that. <laughs> I've been sober about 16 months, and I've managed to pay off uh, the majority of my debt. Um, I've, uh, I'm down to my one of the hopefully last warrants that's been served to me, and I've gotten to know the police officer pretty well on a first-name basis, and uh, it's one of my smallest credit card debts, and uh, I don't know the num number to the company, but I, I know the number to the lawyer who I've spoken with, and um, I feel like I'm in a, uh, I've got to deal with somebody with a bit of intelligence that will realize that I may be lying if I tell him a story, and uh, it's a small amount of money. Uh, the difference between paying 1125 as to paying the principal of 440 plus whatever the court costs are. I've made a big deal over it. And uh, my question is, uh, in situations, a situation in, in your life, in the situation that you've had to deal with in the past, over something simple as a $600 difference that I have the money for, 
and it doesn't make really a big deal if I paid the full amount or paid less, but I'm making more of a big deal over it. And the thing that bothers me the most is my decision about being how honest am I going to be or how much I'm going to lie or over that minimal amount of $600, which won't affect me one way or another. The honesty is more of the thing that's bothering me. I'm kind of stuck in a dilemma over that. What is, in your past, what have you gone through in that? I just, uh, I just believe in honesty. I had a lawyer that I was a good buddy with, and he was up on 18 counts to be disbarred. And he had done a lot of things that were not exactly what lawyers ought to do. And all at once one day he got served by a subpoena to appear before the grand jury to investigate him. And he came to me and he said, I don't know what they're going to try, which one of these things they're going to try to pin on me or what they're going to do to me, what should I do? And I told him, I've never been in your situation, so I can't give you any advice. All I can say is what got us here, the thing that brought us to this point, is honesty and integrity. And if I were you, I believe I'd go in there and just tell them, like you, I owe the money. I'm willing to pay the money. Uh, I haven't got a lot of money, but I'm willing to pay the money. If you want a judgment against me and I can't pay you fast enough, I'll give you a judgment, whatever. Anyway, he went to this grand jury proceeding, and they grilled his ass for about three hours. And they got through, and they said, well, we're through with you. He said, we brought you in here. We thought you'd lie to us, and we were going to, we were going to indict you for perjury. And damned if you didn't tell us the truth on every issue. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm Brett Kearns. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Brett. And, uh, being the good alcoholic I am, I have no problem recognizing self-centeredness in others. <laughs> but I have some difficulty recognizing in myself. How do you go about Recognizing what areas of self-centeredness you have. Well, you know, the the best way, I think, is the inventory process. Where you, well, you're going to have some trouble. You've had some trouble. And when you've had trouble, you write down the name of the person that's involved with that trouble. You write down the specific event that caused the trouble. Then you go over to the next column and you write down, how did that affect me? And they just give you a few choices there. And then the last one is, what was my part in this whole deal? And when you answer that, what was my part, as honestly as you can, you will find where you were self-centered. What motivated you to respond to the situation? What motivated you to do what you did? Uh, what caused the situation? You'll find, you begin to, as you examine your life, you'll begin to find what it is that that you contribute to that situation. And for, for us, and for most human beings, this is the human condition we're talking about with self-centeredness. You'll, he, he may be more self-centered than you are, but the fact is you're not looking at his. You're looking at him, at yourself. You'll find what motivated you and what drove you to react or do what, what you did in that situation. 
So I think it's like old Socrates says, a life based on without well, a life without self examination is not worth living. You really got to take a look at what you what you do in each specific situation. You can't ask yourself in a general way very well what how am I self centered. You got to look at specifics. You got to look at your fishbowl and and see what what you were doing in that situation. Thank you. Thank you. Are we through? We're through.